Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, if you're new with us or have been napping as you've been with us over the recent weeks, then you are not really sure what the Red Letter Challenge is. And so just as a brief introduction, give you the really quick version. The Red Letters refer to some versions of the English Bible where in the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life and ministry, the words of Jesus are printed in red. And so the idea with this challenge is to focus on those red letters, the words of Jesus, to hear from him and then put them into practice, to actually do them. It's that simple and that difficult if you've already begun the challenge. And each day we're guided by a book that gives us a reading and then also gives us a very real, tangible, everyday challenge that we can put the words of Jesus into practice. And so if you are intrigued, you want to be a part of it, we still, I think, have a couple of books left in the Welcome Center. They're $20. You can grab those on the way out and you can be a part of the the challenge as well. As we step into this, there's these five themes that emerge and that develop in us as followers of Jesus. These themes of being and forgiving, serving, giving, and going. And so last week in the message, we talked about being. That reality that we need to be filled up over and over and over again throughout our lives with the presence of God, with his joy, his love, his peace, his spirit, all those things that give us a firm foundation and identity rooted in him. We need to be filled with all of that before we can do anything for him of significance and meaning. And so we talked about these practices, these things that we can do to help us draw near to God and allow us to be open to him filling us over and over. And today, we're moving to everyone's favorite, forgiveness. And so, as we jump into this, I'm wondering for you, when you think about your life, you think about where you are, you think about your past, is there anything that if it came out in the open, that you would be embarrassed by? That would cause you to feel ashamed? Anything that That if it came out, these things that you knew then were wrong, you certainly know now, and they maybe even still kind of haunt you. Whenever I I think about this, I think about a story that I've probably told before, but I can't help but to think about it. It was a time in my life where I, I was responsible for going to the airport to pick up my sister. She was probably 12 or 13 and had been visiting our mom, and she was coming back into town. And so it was in the days where you actually could could go, and as a minor, you were expected to go all the way to the gate to pick them up. I know for some, it's like, really, that happened? Yes, it did. And I was running late on this day, and so I am ripping down the road to get to Denver International Airport, and of course, when you're late, there's never a parking spot. And so I'm in the garage, and I'm circling, looking for a parking spot, and finally, I see a parking spot open up just here on the left, and I'm cruising in there in my 1989 Mercury Topaz, all maroon, interior and exterior. I mean, it was sweet. And I come, and I'm approaching this spot, and I realize I've come in a little hot, and the angle's not quite right, and so I start to slow down, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to make it. And then I'm like, yeah. I am going to make it, and so I just keep going, and then I hear it, my front right bumper had just carved into the doors, 
in the car in the spot next to me. And of course, I'm freaking out. I feel terrible. I'm late. I'm fumbling through things. I have nothing to write on. I have nothing to write with. So I leave. And I get my sister. We come out to the parking garage. The car's gone. There's nothing I can do about it. I feel awful, but I tell no one. Fully expecting that the security cameras or something in the parking lot probably got my license plate and that the police would be knocking on my door someday later saying, hey, remember that hit and run? Yeah. It never happened. It never happened. And I feel terrible still today because there was quite a bit of damage. And there are things in our lives like that that we can't undo. We can't fix, we can't change, and so a lot of the time, we just try to bury it, we try to hide it, and hope that it never comes out, hope that it never rears its ugly head again in our lives, and yet it doesn't seem to go away, does it? It doesn't leave us alone. And this is actually a lot like the story that we're going to look at today. Because if it did come out in the open, what would that be like for you, for everyone to see? everyone to hear. And so let's jump into John chapter 8 and let's read together, see this encounter of Jesus and hear his word for us this morning. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now. And leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into this together. Holy Spirit, be moving among us. We need you. As we consider forgiveness, we need you to move in our hearts and in our souls. And so may you speak, may you shape us, may you guide us and empower us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's the scene in the temple. Lots of people have gathered around to hear Jesus teach, and then these religious leaders burst in, and you can almost picture it, can't you? Almost dragging this woman with them. Interrupting the whole thing. Teacher, they say to Jesus. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. I mean, think about this. Caught in the act of adultery. It's clear 
from the way they've said this, they have the evidence, and the evidence required to prove this would have been the eyewitness testimony of at least two people who saw what could in no other way, without any sort of doubt, have been adultery, the act of. And so they're saying to Jesus, hey, we've got the witnesses. And no, Jesus doesn't argue with them about the witnesses or the evidence. Actually, it seems that he concedes the truth of the matter. And so they press in on him, though. Now, in the law that Moses gives us, it commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They've thrown down the gauntlet. They want to know what Jesus' opinion is. They cite to him the law of Moses, which in Deuteronomy chapter 22, it clearly says that a woman who is engaged to someone who's caught in adultery should be stoned. Well, actually, if they really went back to it, it says that both of them should be taken out to the gate and stoned. Both the man and the woman. Where's the man? When they're caught in the act of adultery, they would have known who he was. Quite a double standard, isn't it? But they had their own plans, their own agenda, and yet this double standard does seem to rear its head even today as in our world. Because the behavior of men is often excused as adventurous. Boys will be boys. He's just sowing his oats. But when a woman behaves in a similar manner, what happens? She's shamed with name-calling. She's blamed as a temptress. And it goes back to the way that the people understood the story in the garden of Adam and Eve, that Eve is blamed as the reason for sin, the tempter of Adam. We seem conveniently to overlook the reality that Adam was standing right there next to her and did nothing as a passive man. And yet, in Jesus' day, it was still the very commonly held perspective that women basically couldn't be trusted because they would tempt otherwise good and upright men. Please hear the dripping sarcasm. What a lie. What an incredible hypocrisy. This double standard right from the moment they enter the temple because they're not really interested in justice. But here is this woman caught in this power struggle between the religious leaders and Jesus, vulnerable with her sin out in the open, exposed for everyone to see, with nobody there apparently standing for her, and certainly not even the guy that she had been with standing there to deal with the consequences with her. And these men don't care. They don't care about her. She's just a pawn in their bigger game. And so they press in on Jesus. Hey, the law, you hear it, you know it. In the law, we're commanded to stone such women. So what do you say, Jesus? Because Jesus had a reputation, didn't he? He had a reputation of mercy and forgiveness, of being for those who seem to be on the outside. But here's their opportunity to trap him, finally, because the law is absolutely clear. There is no doubt this woman should, in fact, be stoned to death. And so what will Jesus do? We'll draw in the dust, obviously. That makes sense, right? 
No, we didn't really see that one coming, did we? And neither did they. And there's a whole lot of debate about what Jesus was writing there in the dust. Some people think that it was the Ten Commandments, you know, trying to lay out the reality that, hey, there's more sin than just this one. Or maybe he was writing the names of the men who were accusing, kind of giving this passive kind of, hey, I know you, and I know about you. I know what you've done. And we don't know exactly what he was writing. It's all speculation. We do know that they keep pushing him for an answer. What do you say? What are you going to do, Jesus? And so finally, Jesus stands up. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He doesn't pretend that she hasn't sinned. She does, he doesn't pretend that she deserves anything but to be stoned to death. As a matter of fact, it was an open possibility. He's inviting them to go ahead and do it. And so Jesus is upholding the law. He's upholding the reality that God has standards for us, for our lives, that are good and right and holy and beautiful, and that there are consequences for the violation of those standards. He upholds that law. Go ahead, stone her. But he reframes the process a little bit, doesn't he? And he actually invokes another part of the law from Deuteronomy chapter 17, which said very clearly, hey, the witnesses should be the ones to throw the first stones, and then everybody else can join in. And so he's calling on them, hey, check yourself. Hey, witnesses, you want to testify this is what you saw? You better be sure that that's what you saw, because if you go through with this and you aren't sure, you're going to have killed an innocent woman. He's demanding some self-examination, and he's inviting it not just from those witnesses, but from all of them to look inward at their own lives, saying, yeah, check your own self. Hey, if you're without sin, then go ahead, join in, execute her. And maybe this is what he was writing about in the dust, inviting them to take a moral inventory to consider where their own lives, where they may know that God has a good and holy and upright standard, and they may know that, but they've decided, like we so often do, yeah, God, I know that you have a standard, but I want to do this my way. I want to live on my own terms, not yours. But maybe, just maybe, they were starting to reflect on that reality in their own lives because it tells us that those who heard Jesus started leaving one at a time. Isn't it so interesting that the older ones go first? Maybe they just had longer lists. You know, they've had a little more time. Or maybe it's that they've become a little more flexible. And that the young and the zealous can be much more rigid. Whatever it is, they leave. And Jesus straightens up again after everyone has left. And now it's just Jesus and this woman face to face. How quiet must it have been in that moment? How eerily quiet. And now this woman is face to face with Jesus. I don't think she can probably even breathe because Jesus knows. And what's he going to do? Jesus is a rabbi or a prophet They didn't exactly know what to do with him, but they knew there was something different about this guy, and he had a connection with God. And if he's got a connection with God, God knows what I have done, and the reality is God is clearly disappointed with me. 
You ever thought that? God is disappointed with me? In this moment, in the midst of that disappointment and shame, wondering what is he going to do? Woman, where are they? Where'd they go? Has no one condemned you? Has no one declared you guilty and worthy of punishment and death? Has no one been willing to say that, yes, you should die? Yes, you are a disappointment? No one, sir. Her only words in the whole passage had no voice until this moment when Jesus got everyone else out, giving her a voice, and all she is able to say is, no one, sir then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. He had already been so clear. She was worthy of being stoned, worthy of death. And so he's not just excusing her behavior as if, oh no, it wasn't actually that big a deal. It didn't really matter. No, he's saying it is a big deal. It was a big deal, but I do not condemn you. I'm the only one who had the authority to condemn you. The only one who was in this room, who was without sin, who was worthy to cast the first stone. Yeah, that's me. And I choose not to cast the first stone. It's well within my rights. It's well within my authority. And yet, I choose not to condemn you. I choose not for you to have to face the full brunt of the weight of the just consequences for your sin. I forgive you. And this, this, this was a big one, wasn't it? I mean, we like to grade sins and put them on the scale. And, you know, there's the little ones and then there's the big ones. And you know, the reality is that in our life, yes, some, cons- some sin has greater and lesser consequences in this life. But all of them are a violation of our relationship with God. All of them are a violation of his authority. All of them are treason against the God and the king and the creator of the universe but not all of them in the law even required someone to be stoned to death, but this one did. This was a big one. And Jesus says, I choose not to condemn you. Think about your life. Think about those things that maybe got stirred up at the beginning, that if they came out in the open would bring embarrassment and shame, regret, the reality of your unholiness, of your unworthiness, of your unlovableness. If she's not condemned, where does that leave you? See, Jesus doesn't want to condemn you. Jesus wants to offer you in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness, that there is no sin that is so big, so grievous, so great, so shameful that Jesus can't and didn't come to take away from you the condemnation, the guilt, the embarrassment, the shame so that you no longer have to carry it anymore. She has freedom from all of that. And then Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin. Just in case you thought I was saying this is not a big deal. No, sin is a big deal. Your sin is serious. It's destroying your life, so leave it behind. I don't condemn you. She has a whole new lease on life. But the question from that moment then becomes, now what? 
So what? This is the only account that we know of of this woman in the Gospels. We don't actually get an answer to that question. We're left to wonder what comes of her. And I think we're left to wonder because that, the reality is that's where we find ourselves. Right here, in this same sort of place. What do we do with this? Where do we go from here? What do you do with the reality that you are not condemned, that in Jesus there is forgiveness? What do you do with this as we step into a week that is all about receiving but then giving forgiveness, practicing that with the people in our lives who have harmed us and hurt us? What do we think she does? Does she go on and forgive her hypocritical accusers that would use her in their lust for power and would just throw her life away? Do they deserve her forgiveness? Do they apologize for what they put her through? No and no. They don't apologize, and they don't deserve her forgiveness. They tried to murder her. What they deserve is justice. They deserve to get what's coming to them. They deserve to go through what she went through, to have their sin brought out into the open. They deserve to be publicly shamed and exposed They deserve that equal response to the infraction and the hurt that they have imposed on her life. And isn't that how we feel when we get hurt? We just want them to hurt the way that we hurt. And just a little bit more. And part of that's our just and our natural response because it's not okay. It's not okay when we sin against one another. It's not okay to hurt one another. But so often we move from a just response to a desire for vengeance and to extract pain from the other. To forgive? No. No way. Why would we do that? As a matter of fact, that whole impulse is growing and growing in our society. Just look everywhere we turn. Is forgiveness what you see? No, we see a demand. A demand for justice. And there's an argument that's com- that is common and is growing within our society that a demand for forgiveness is just a power play by those who are in places of power, who are abusing their power, and they're forcing those who are being the victims to forgive, to reinforce their use of power. And so for- to forgive is seen as just enabling the abusers and those in power. And so no, we will not forgive. We want justice. Philip Yancey is an author, and he shared a story in one of his books about being invited to be a part of a reconciliation weekend, where there were 10 Jews and 10 Muslims and 10 Christians that came together, and they were hoping that just in this small group, they might be able to sow some seeds of reconciliation, to begin to move toward one another as a model for greater reconciliation in society. And so it began with this hopefulness, right? It began with this, maybe they can move through it, but quickly things deteriorated till it almost came to to physical blows as they continued to recount the ways that they had hurt and harmed one another throughout history, as they recounted the atrocities that were done to one another, and it just continued to perpetuate this cycle. And finally, one Jewish woman that's with them speaks up. She had been part of previous reconciliation efforts. And she says this, I believe we Jews have a lot to learn from you Christians about forgiveness. I see no other way around the log jams. They They couldn't move beyond the demand for justice. They couldn't move beyond the hurts that had been inflicted on them. So I see no other way around the log jams. And yet, she says, it seems so unfair to forgive 
injustice. I'm caught between forgiveness and justice. I'm caught. And the reality is forgiveness is hard because forgiveness is 100% unfair. And we are obsessed with fairness from when we're little toddlers. We're running around. It's not fair because I don't have this or I don't have that. And they got this and I got that. We're obsessed with fairness. And forgiveness is not fair because forgiveness, in forgiveness, we have to bear the cost. Forgiveness is always unfair because it costs the one who forgives dearly. Because in forgiveness, we take the cost. We take the hurt, we take the pain, we take the offense, and we release the other from any pain, any hurt, any demand for justice. And yet you walk away continuing to carry the memories and the wounds and the offense, and it's unfair. A big reason, I think, why we don't forgive, because the cost feels like it's too high. And yet many, many of us go through life and we know we should forgive. It's the right thing to do. Isn't it? We should do it. Yeah, but the problem is it, in that place, it becomes this moral burden. And then when we go about forgiving others because we should, it's often mechanical. It's often insincere. It often, at the end of the day, we're still left harboring at least a little bit of resentment if we're able to actually seem to forgive and not demand something from the other, it, it often leaves us feeling a little bit superior to them. That the cost that we had to pay to forgive them was a cost that was worth it because it was our payment for getting to be just a little bit above them. Just a little bit more on the moral high ground than they are. We bared the cost, but it was, it's okay. We're better than they are. It was worth it. And others that move from, okay, you, no, 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 you shouldn't forgive just because you should. You should forgive because it's good for you. It offers you inner peace. Forgive so that you can feel better. It's often known as a therapeutic approach to forgiveness. And so it has nothing to do with releasing the other from the debt that they have created, from the hurt and the pain. It's about releasing you so that you can feel good on the inside. And it is often true. When you've practiced and exercised forgiveness, it often does feel better. And often we can release the anger and we can release the hurt and we can have some freedom. But here's the thing, if feeling better is our only motivation for forgiveness, what happens when we don't feel better? Because sometimes the hurt stays. Sometimes the memories linger. And I promise you, I can revoke the forgiveness that I offered yesterday, today, because I can dwell on it just as hard as I did two days ago. And I can whip up a lather of hatred and anger and bitterness and a demand for justice. See, and I think the only thing to, to me that empowers us to actually forgive, particularly when the hurts have been so big, so grievous, so painful for us, is the experience that this woman had. Because she was not condemned. But remember, I just said that forgiveness costs something. What did it cost this woman to be forgiven? She was supposed to be stoned to death. And interestingly, by the end of this chapter, chapter 8, Jesus is with religious leaders again, and they want to stone him to death. The reality is that she deserved condemnation 
But Jesus stepped into her place and took on the condemnation on himself instead of her having to feel the weight of the suffering and the consequences, the justice for her sin. He took it on himself. Remember the Jewish woman who felt stuck between justice and forgiveness at the cross? At the cross is where justice and forgiveness meet. It's where the just God poured out the just consequence for your sin and my sin and poured it out on his son, Jesus the Christ, so that you and I didn't have to die. He stood in our place because we could never have have bared the cost of that. Instead, he did it for us. The cost and the consequences of our sin is absolutely real. Death is still the requirement But Jesus stepped into that place to take her condemnation, to take our condemnation so that she could go free, so that we could go free. And man, the more we understand that, the more we realize that our lives and our sin demanded the death of the Son of God, how can we not be humbled before one another? How can we not be humbled when we realize that my sin, my treason against the God of the universe demands my life? demanded the death of Jesus. And so when I look at those who have wronged me in my life, those who have hurt me, those who have offended me, what have they done? What has it cost me compared to the cost that Jesus bore in my place? We can forgive because we recognize that there is nothing I can forgive that is greater than what Jesus has forgiven me. That there is no cost that I can bear that is greater than the cost that Jesus absorbed for me. And then maybe we can begin to offer forgiveness to one another. But we don't have to walk. We can also, at the same time, walk away with a confidence that allows us to call sin, sin. That lets us not, but not demand justice to say, when you've done this, it hurts me. Yes, it's wrong. It's not okay. And I do not demand justice. I forgive you because Jesus has forgiven me. But as I come to the end, I can't help but to ask one other question. Do you think she forgave herself? Do you think she forgave herself? Because I hear so often, I can't forgive myself. I'll never forgive myself. And we, become, we can become so obsessed with, I will never let this happen again. And we can become so obsessed with trying to be perfect all of a sudden in all of our strength and all of our own power as if somehow we can repay the debt that we've created, that our sin in the past, that we can wash over, that we can clear it, we can clean it. And the reality is that if we continue to live in a place where we say, I can never forgive myself, then here's the thing. What we've said is that Jesus, your life wasn't enough for me. Your death was insufficient. It was inadequate. It was not enough to take my sin and my consequences. Instead, there is more for me to do. And so we're not relying on Jesus as our Savior in that moment. We are still relying on ourselves. And the invitation is to allow Jesus to take the fullness of the weight of the consequences of your sin so that you can be free, so that you can be forgiven so that you can forgive even yourself from that which you are ashamed and embarrassed and you can then, we can then begin to extend grace and forgiveness to others because we realize the enormity of what Jesus has absorbed, the cost, all of the cost of all of our sin is forgiven in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is not, uh, this is a heavy topic. 
because the hurt and the pain is real. The shame and the guilt is real. So Holy Spirit, may you allow us to see what Jesus has done for us. See how he has taken the fullness of our sinfulness, our consequences, our condemnation. May we see that loving gift that he voluntarily stood in that place so that he could look at us and say, neither do I condemn you. Lord, may we know the freedom of being forgiven. And Lord, may we be transformed in our heart and our soul to be people that can also extend forgiveness to others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.